Many of you all know I served as a missionary in the Republic of South Africa from 1992 to 1994. That was an exciting time to be in South Africa, the country that had been under apartheid, legal separation of races for decades as those walls of apartheid were coming down. And South Africa had what they referred to as a uh, negotiated revolution where the white government that was the minority of people negotiated with the majority, the black folks and their representatives of their political party, of how they were going to transition power and how they were going to have national elections for the first time in which everyone, and I forget what the age was, but no matter the color of your skin or the language you spoke, would get a chance to vote. And they were calling for international observers And I was a missionary, and I had worked in the black townships for two years, and I spoke a little bit of Zulu and Swana and can understand some Hosa and some Sutu. And so I thought I would be the perfect international observer. Besides, I'll be there to see history made. I've given my life to these people for a year and a half, and I love these people. So to be in South Africa when presumptively Nelson Mandela would be elected as the president of a free new South Africa would be awesome. I could tell my children about it, my grandchildren about it. I was there, right? Well, I had a boss, a supervisor, and he was like, "Ah, I think you could stay, you know, um, but... You know, they were telling us as missionaries, it might be violent. You, it was recommended that you leave the country. And I was going, we're here serving these people, and now at the time of need in which Mandela might be elected, you're telling us to leave? So it was heard by our director, who was in Johannesburg, about 45 minutes away from where I was stationed, that I wanted to stay, and I was going to apply to be a national, or, uh, an international observer. And he called me in for a meeting. And of course, I'm thinking, it's historic, I speak the language, I love these people, I want to be here. Who else to better be an observer than me? He's thinking, there could be violence, I'm not going to write a letter home to your mama if something happens to you. And that's literally what he said to me. And we're going back and forth, and this man is old enough to be my father, and he is an authority over me. And he finally says to me, Aaron, do you have a problem with authority? kind of took me back a little bit, and frankly, friends, I lied to him. I said, no, I don't. And I was thinking, I don't have a problem with authority in general, but I do have a problem with the way you're trying to pull it on me right now, because as I was thinking, I'm in the right place to be here, and I should be able to do this. But he finally said to me, no, you're not. You're going to Haberoni, Botswana. You're going to stay with Brian Beetle there. I've already called and I've already arranged it. Then, of course, I got a little incensed. I thought, he's making plans for my life? You're not my mama. But, of course, he reminded me he didn't want to have to write my mama a letter. Wouldn't you know that in the days that it took to take the national election in South Africa, that the murder rate in South Africa was at an all-time low? Soweto, where I spent most of my time, was the murder capital of the world at that point in time. And by the fact that I had a white face, most of the time people would thought I was in danger, but people that knew me would have protected me with their life. So it was quite opposite of what the missionaries expected. Nelson Mandela was indeed elected president, and I went to Haberoni where a bunch of my stuff was stolen out of my friend's house. 
that's another story. But that question of authority, I think it's a human question, isn't it? Because all of us, by our nature, want to be in charge of our life, of our stuff. And we can get quite offended when somebody tells us what to do, or if they mess with our stuff, or move our stuff, or don't do it the way we want. Ask my family about how I can get sometimes, this is the way we're going to do it. And it's human nature. It's that question of who is in charge. But when we apply that question to the church, the Bible, as in every other area of life, does give us the answer. And we're going to seek to study that today. That question of who is in charge when it comes to authority. But in the weeks ahead, we have other lessons. Next week, we're going to talk about leadership. Whom do I follow? Well, the Bible gives us two officers, pastors and deacons, so we won't talk much about pastors today because we'll have more of that in the sermon next week. The third sermon in the series is about membership, and that's to whom am I accountable? There are many things we could do different or better around here, but one, I believe, is that we could be more accountable to one another. Instead of just showing up on Sunday morning, that we live life in a more intimate manner. We'll talk about that two weeks from now. The third lesson is on unity. Who is my brother? I mean, it should be self-explanatory from Scripture, but we need to look at Scripture and have it touch our hearts that we might live differently. The third lesson is on worship. Speaking specifically of corporate worship, of why do we gather together? And then we have three sermons that are specific to our new directional principles. That Those will be through August, leading us right up to September in the Labor Day holiday. So let's turn our attention to our Scripture of the Month. The Scripture of the Month from last week's sermon is from Psalm 67, 1 and 2, and it's about how we're blessed to be a blessing, but let's say it together. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make His face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Psalm 67, 1 and 2. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you remind us from this scripture that you have blessed us in order that we might be a blessing to others. That everything you give is a good and gracious gift. The very fact that we have life and breath, that we are sentient and have the ability to think, that we have the ability to feel and love, even be hurt. All these things you give us, and you give us so that we might live and serve you, and that part of our service to you is by serving and giving to others. So, Father, as we seek to understand now and study Scripture, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit to remind us of your sovereignty and of our requirement to obey and to serve you? Because you have first loved us. So speak to us by your spirit, we pray, and through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, we've got a number of scriptures to consider today, so uh, quite a bit to turn to. And I want to start by means of introduction still in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. So if you've got your copy of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2, if not, there should be Bibles in the uh, hymnal uh, rack in front of you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. 
Paul talks in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 of what it is to be an individual in Christ, that it's by His grace and that it's uh, to serve Him that we're set aside and we're gifted. But in verse 11, there's a transition. Ephesians 2, 11 and following, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands. So all of us here, unless you are of Jewish ancestry, all of us fit in the category of Gentiles. And all of us, therefore, were separated from God and not His people as Gentiles. Now go on, verse 12. Remember that in the, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Not being God's people, not being Jewish, all of us are born into that predicament that we have no hope for eternity because we don't have a personal relationship with God. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, so there's your key, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, you are in Christ and you have a relationship with God through Him. Verse 14, For He Himself is our peace, who made the two, two different nations, Gentiles and Jews, into one and destroyed the barrier by dividing the wall of hostility, by abolishing in His flesh the law and its commandments and the regulations. Skip down to verse 19. We're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul switches analogies here from one to the other. He talks about uh, nationality and being an alien, a foreigner, and now part of the citizenship in verse 19. Then he talks about a building, a household, and a place in which God's Spirit lives. And as an individual body of believers, that's what we are. We are a unique group, a church. And whether you're a member of this church or not, If you attend this church on a regular basis, you are part of what I would call the Southview family. And if you're our guest today, we're glad to have you here. And we would ask you to consider, if you live here in Lincoln and don't have a church home, that would you unite with Southview to be your church home? But those of us that belong to this body, this is our church. So let's look at the sources of authority for our church. Number one on your outline there is God. Number one on our outline is God. And we ask ourselves, how do we recognize His authority? How do we recognize His authority? Now, I have Genesis 1 and 2 referenced. So if you want to, and we're not going to read the entirety, but turn in your Bible to the very beginning. Genesis means beginning. And Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talk about the creation of the world. Not in a scientific way, because the Bible is not a scientific textbook. But as telling a story of a relationship with God and man, because that's what the Bible is about. 
And you notice in Genesis chapter 1, it says in verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it gives you a summary statement of what it was like before. Now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then notice in verse 3 it says, and God said. And in verse 6 it says, and God said. In verse 9 it says, and God said. In verse 14 it said, and God said. In verse 20 it says, and God said. In verse 24, and God said. Again and again and again, God spoke into creation. Now, I know that some of you around here are quite talented at things. We had this uh, amazing example of collaboration and talent that stood right about here a few weeks ago, that 14-foot tree for our Vacation Bible School. You know, it was Cheryl Booth's uh, mastermind and Jason and, uh, oh, uh, yeah, David and others got involved as her minions, she affectionately called them, to uh, build this tree. And they worked together and they built a tree. You can go to a job site where they're building a building or a home and you can look and you can see the different skilled laborers doing different things to build something. Or you just go to your kitchen and you pull out your recipe book and you get your ingredients, your new utensils, and you mix up whatever you're creating and you make something. But is there anybody in this room that can make something just by saying it? And I'm not telling you or not saying that you tell your child or someone else to do it. I'm saying by the word of your mouth, you can say, make me a tree in this sanctuary. Not a one of us can do it. Not a one of us is God. Not a one of us has the ability to create something from nothing. But God does, and He has that authority. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. So back to your New Testament. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 and 36. So Paul in the book of Romans is writing a theological treatise. He's telling the church, hey, here's what it was like for the Jewish people for Israel. Here's what it's like for you as believers in Jesus. And he said there in Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 11, he's talking about the uh, Gentile people, excuse me, being uh, then grafted into the vine. And then he celebrates with this doxology in verse 33, 34, 35, and 36. This song of praise to God. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. None of us can do the things He does. None of us know the things He knows. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, we can study Scripture, but we still can't fully know it because we're not Him. And we have sin and He has none. Or who has been His counselor? You can sure try to tell God what to do, but good luck with that. Let me know how that works out for you, right? Verse 35, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? That anything we give him, even our best, is as filthy rags. Verse 36, for from him and through him and in him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. From him and through him and to him are all things. God is the ultimate authority for all of life. And foundationally then, God is our authority as the church. The church is God's church. And our authority finds its foundation in God. And as you might expect, point number two on your outline is Jesus. 
Where can we have, or where can he, excuse me, have more control? Because as you know, Jesus is God's son and God sent Jesus down to earth to pay the penalty for our sins and then to establish the church. This organization that we belong to, this organism, excuse me, that we belong to and which his spirit dwells to worship him. But my question here assumes something. Where can he have more control? My question assumes that we don't give enough control to Jesus. Now this past week in our house, something unique happened. I turned over the keys to the car to my firstborn. Now they are not his. It is not his car. It is my car. But in the safety of the Southwest High School parking lot, I let him sit down in the driver's seat and coached him on adjusting the seat back because he's taller than me and adjusting the mirrors, even though we would be going around the parking lot and hopefully he wouldn't need his rear view mirrors and getting the steering wheel just right. And I told him, okay, now, you know, this one's the brake, this one's the gas. This was his first time behind the wheel, mind you. And he let his foot off the brake once he put it in uh, drive. And you know what? My car has just enough power that when you take your foot off the brake, it will drive forward at idle at about seven miles per hour, wasn't it, Seth? So we're driving across the parking lot at Southwest High School at seven miles an hour. And I said, you know, you can put your foot on the gas, the accelerator, and give a little bit. Just ease into it. Just a little bit, and we'll go faster. He says, no, this is just fine. (laughs) And we drove half the length of the parking lot at Southwest High School at seven miles per hour with him just holding steady on the wheel. I said, son, this is good for now, but you're going to have to learn to get more comfortable driving a little faster with your mirrors and using the accelerator as well as the brake instead of just letting the idle speed pull you along. He was in control, sort of. Because then when he pushed on the gas, it was like, whoa. And when he pushed on the brake, it was, whoa. And when he made a turn, I was like, whoa. And only one time did he really freak me out, and I thought he was going to run into a pole or something. I'm like, stop. I had to reach over and grab the steering wheel. He's like, daddy, I got this. I'm like, man, you're scaring me now. I thought, Lord Jesus, help us for when we get out on the road for real. That's another story, isn't it? How many of us? like to have that control, not just of our car, but of our lives. And we're like, okay, Jesus, you keep your hands off. You stay over there in the passenger seat. Better yet, Jesus, you get in the back seat and don't tell me what to do either, backseat driver Jesus. I'm in control of this life. Most of us, by our nature, our sinful, selfish nature, want to do things our way. And we need to be reminded that it's not our life to control. When we as humans... Ask Jesus to be our Savior. We also ask Him to be our Lord. That means boss. That means master. That means He's in control. So turn back to Hebrews with me. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8 and 10. Now, Hebrews again is a theological treatise. We don't know who the author is, but the author was a Jewish person and he's writing to Jewish believers in Jesus and he's saying, Hey guys, You've got some issues here, and I'm going to try to correct them by explaining to you from Scripture. And he quotes a whole bunch of Old Testament Scripture, but reframes it with Christ Jesus 
as their centerpiece. And he says here in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 8, 9, and 10, Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased when although with them, although the law required that they be made. Then he said, Here I am, I have come to do your will. He set aside the first, established the second, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Jesus sacrificed himself to buy our salvation and to establish the church. And therefore, we owe him our love and allegiance and obedience. We honor his sacrifice by what he did. Now, turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, you'll recognize this passage of Scripture we call the Great Commission because it's Jesus commissioning his disciples before he ascended into heaven. But notice what he says, or Scripture says, Then Jesus came to them and said, Now, hear the words of Jesus. What does it start with? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's saying, here's what you do to be the church. But what does it start with there in verse 18? All authority. Everybody say all authority. All authority. Jesus has all authority. Where? In heaven. Where else? And on earth. Who is it given to? Him. It's not our authority. It's His authority. All authority is His. I love those commercials that they put on for prescription drugs. You know, it's a pleasant scene with pleasant-looking people and pleasant-sounding music. And then they talk about if you have some disorder or disease, that if you take this drug, you'll have some pleasant outcomes. And the voice that narrates that part is very smooth and nice, and with blah, 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 blah. And you're like, oh, this is so pleasant. Until the latter part of the commercial... When all the fine print comes up on the screen, and I mean, can you press pause and magnify that? And then the guy starts talking in this different voice, and he says, and the side effects of the such and such, but it's not so pleasant anymore. And I know they've got to do that. It's legal. That's the way the FDA says it. Those are the rules we play by. But do some of us feel that way about the Bible, Right? Sometimes the preacher gets up here and he says pleasant things about the Bible and about if you serve Jesus and do the things in the Bible, it'll be so pleasant, it'll be so wonderful, and you'll look like the people on the commercial, and there'll be a musical soundtrack that makes you want to go, while you're living through your life with Jesus. But then sometimes you're reading the Bible yourself and you're like, hey, the pastor forgot to tell me about this part. This is like those side effects in the part in the commercial that the dude reads really fast. This isn't fair. That's sometimes how we feel. Friends, I try to preach expository sermons. And I try to preach them that way so that we don't leave out any of the parts that might make you say this isn't fair, that seem like it's the fine print. I want to disclose all those things to you in the way I preach because I want you to know that, yes, the Bible gives us promises we can hold on to that are pleasant. 
But there's also going to be things that our life's still going to have problems. Just because you're a believer in Jesus doesn't mean that it's always going to be the way you want, especially when we think about this area of authority. Because friends, although we like to be in charge of our lives, when we ask Jesus to be our Savior and Lord, we step out of the driver's seat and we hand Him the keys. Where we get in trouble is when we try to get back in the driver's seat and take over the keys. It all comes back to authority. Who's in charge? Let's segue now to our third point this morning, and that's the Bible. The Bible, how valuable versus opinions. In your life, how valuable do you treat the Bible versus the opinions that you have and that others have or that your favorite blogger has or even a Christian book that you're reading has? Turn back with me to Hebrews. I should have told you to keep a finger there since we were going back. Hebrews chapter 4. This is one of those scriptures that if you don't have it memorized, if you don't have it marked, you should. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is, listen to the description of the Bible, the Word of God, living and active. It's not just a regular book. Because of the Holy Spirit, it's living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now, if you think about that literally, that is scary, frightening, gross, graphic. But it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality of what God's Word is and can and should do in our lives. Sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates dividing the soul and spirit. I pray that if you're a believer in Jesus, you've had that instance where either in this room, as I've preached, or on your own, as you've read, or listening to the radio, or a preacher, or a teacher, Scripture just absolutely drills you. And nails you to the ground. And you're like, holy moly. And that's the power, that's the authority of God's word in our lives. Turn to 2 Timothy. It's just a couple pages to your left. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. A touchstone scripture about scripture. And it describes the Bible to us as all scripture is God-breathed. So by his breath, his inspiration. And it's useful for these four things, broad categories, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then you got the so that, you know, I love the so that. So that the man of God, woman as well, may be thoroughly, that means absolutely, positively, completely equipped for every good work. Everything you need to do that God intends you to do, you will get the guidance, the direction from Scripture. That Scripture's promise to you. The Bible should be our daily authority. I know it because I've been there before that some Sunday mornings you show up to church and you are just beat up and wore out and ragged. And you also feel like you're so spiritually weak, almost impotent. And some of those times it's because I haven't spent the time I needed to spend feeding myself through the week on God's Word. The Bible is the bread of life. And I need to daily consume that bread to strengthen me spiritually. 
And it's no wonder I feel spiritually beat up and weak when I come to church on Sunday because I haven't had anything to eat all week long. How many of you live that way? That you don't spend any time. And I would challenge you, find a little time. Turn off some electronic device. Any electronic device that is distracting you. If you have more than one on at a time, definitely turn them all off. Open up your Bible. Clear your mind. Ask God to help you in a prayer that you might focus and read His Word and that He can speak to you truth that will help you know how to live your life. It's a simple practice, but it's so life-giving. And as you spend time in God's Word, you'll grow confident in its authority. Matt Chandler said it this way, If you are not confident in the authority of Scriptures, you'll be a slave to what sounds right. How many of us are slaves to opinions, are slaves to ideas of others, rather than resting our life, our decisions, our directions, our hopes, our dreams, our peace on the authority of God's Word? This leads to our fourth source of authority, and that's pastors. And I've got to ask us, what does the question, or what does the Bible teach about pastors? And as I said, we'll have more on this topic specifically next week. But if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Now this passive scripture is unique in that it uses various titles for what we call a pastor. So it is where we build our theology of church leadership on, is this is one of those foundational pastors. So listen with me, and by my voice and my inflection, you'll hear those titles. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock, That is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, Peter is writing other elders. And he uses as a cognate word, but uh, the, the verb form, be shepherds, or excuse me, it's a noun, be shepherds of the flock. And then he uses the word overseers. And this passage of Scripture ties together as synonymous all three of these terms for what we understand as a pastor. And as we look in other scriptures, we see the authority of those that have been appointed as pastor, shepherd, elder, overseers of the church. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. So go back in your Bible to the left to Acts chapter 20. Now we have a different situation here. Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, the pastors in the church So it was a large church that had grown in his three years of living there in his ministry. And he had deep relationships with them. And he says in verse 28, we'll just pick this one verse out of this entire goodbye that he gives them. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer. Be shepherds of God's church, the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. 
again, in just one verse that we pick out, you see this picture of what a pastor is and what a pastor should be and where his authority comes from. The authority of a pastor comes from Scripture, by Jesus, from God. And pastors are to shepherd, guide, oversee the flock. We'll talk more about pastors next week, but let's touch on the congregation, you all, and our fifth point before we go. The congregation is how do we live this? I haven't done a study on it, and I didn't take the time this week. I have to confess in my study to check this one out, what I'm about to say to you. But what I'm curious to know, and maybe one of you might know, is of the instructions given to the church in the New Testament, how many of those were positive instructions, do this, versus negative instructions, don't do this? Sometimes I feel like when you read from Acts, in which you have churches growing and sometimes having issues, and certainly when you read the epistles, everything from Romans on, in which the writer of each letter is generally saying to the church, here's some good things you did, and here's a whole lot of bad things and how you need to do them differently. I kind of feel like, yeah, that's me. That's the churches I've pastored. We do some good things and we love Jesus, but man, it's so easy to do it our way. Man, it's so easy to be human. Man, it's so easy to be sinful. And then we have to come to Scripture and feel like it smacks us on the back of the hand. Or worse. Now, some of you already put up your outlines. I heard you. It's like we fill in that last blank and everything gets folded up. Do you still have your Bible out? Can you read the last two scriptures with me? And the reason there's space there is so you can write down some insights from the scriptures. Not just what I say, but what the Holy Spirit says to you. Now that the pastor smacked you on your hand, please turn to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 15, 16, and 17. Our brother Mark Elliott from the Heartland Church Network has a seminar that he teaches to churches about how to be at peace with one another. And he reminds me and the other pastors that he should teach that seminar when there's not a conflicted situation. So I'm thinking since we're all getting along these days, it's about time for me to have Mark in to teach that seminar. And the basis of it is to teach believers in Jesus that belong to a local church how to get along. And part of that is this scripture right here, Matthew 18, 15, because it's so easy just for us to neglect this. We know what it says, and if you don't, I'm about to read it to you. If your brother sins against you, all right, there you go. Brother sins against you, so another believer in Jesus, but by extension can be any person if they sin against you. Go and show him his fault. So that means just you. It doesn't say call up five other people on the phone and talk about it. It doesn't say put it on social media, even in a veiled way. I hate it when people do that. So everybody will be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Who did that to you? Stop it, people. Just stop it. Just between the two of you. Man up, woman up, get the courage just between the two of you. If you don't have the courage to confront somebody one-on-one, I would ask you how bad was the offense? Or are you just having a little pity party? Verse 16. 
But if he will not listen, take one or two others along. That is when you involve others. If and only if, in the first time you have kindly, lovingly confronted that person who has sinned against you, they did not want to hear you or receive you. But if he will not listen, take one or two others, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. How many times do we get this upside down and backwards? Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Heaven forbid we ever get to that part. That would be ugly. And in these days and times, people might want to turn around and sue you if you asked them to leave the church. Because they sinned against somebody and you hurt their feelings. Friends, if we believe God's word is our authority, we've got to live by God's word. And if it gives us authority as a congregation, one-on-one to confront sin, two or three-on-one to confront sin, or as a whole congregation to confront sin, I have to ask myself as a pastor and ask you as the congregation, why don't we do it? Are we so afraid of the consequences in our modern day and time that we won't lovingly and kindly confront someone in sin. Turn with me to our final scripture. And after you write your notes from that, then you can put your outlines up. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There's much that could be said about how do we live this and the theology of the congregation, but I'm using these two scriptures as illustrative scriptures of what God has entrusted us with as believers in Jesus that are called a local body, a church. So let's look at this second one, different than the first one. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. If anyone has caused grief... He has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. To some extent, not to put it too severely. So he's talking about the church at Corinth and that the church itself has been grieved by the actions of someone. Verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So he did something against the church and he was punished by the church. Verse 7, now instead you ought to forgive him and comfort him. So once there has been something done, there should be forgiveness and comfort. So that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Our goal is not to beat somebody up and throw them out in our self-righteousness that they were wrong and we were right. But to redeem them to the body of Jesus And the love of Christ. Verse 8. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him. It is all too easy for us to get gossipy about somebody that is sinned against us or just sinned period. And run them out of the church and then continue to sit here in our pews all self-righteous that we're here and we didn't do that and they did. Ha. But that's not what Scripture tells us to do. Reaffirm your love for Him. Forgive, comfort, it said in the previous verse. 
so that person won't be overwhelmed by sorrow. Yes, we should confront sin, but we do it in a loving manner. And we do it to love and comfort them and reaffirm them and bring them back into the fellowship stronger than they were before. This unique thing happens to me as a pastor maybe more often than it does to the average church member because of my position. And sometimes it happens in my office right over there. Sometimes it happens at a restaurant across a table. Sometimes it happens in someone's living room. And it goes like this. The person says, Pastor, I need to talk to you. And you can tell by the tone of their voice that something is worrying them and they're not right. And then if you see them face to face, you can tell the nonverbal signals that they've got something heavy on their heart. So, of course, inside I immediately go, okay, Holy Spirit, help me not say stupid errand things, but say godly biblical things. And show this person love and listen the way I need to listen. And we sit down and they begin to tell a story. Most often they don't say, here's my sin, but they tell a story. And they tell a story of what happened leading up to some sin or series of sins or some habitual sinful habit. And then they don't want to look at me. They're looking away. If they've been crying, they're crying. I've handed them a Kleenex or whatever. You know how those things go. And it's at that point, not because I'm me, but because of Jesus, that most often I want to reach over and put my hand on them, on their shoulder, their arm, their leg, wherever I can reach, whatever's appropriate. And get them to, you know, I kind of bend down and get them to get eye contact with me. And here's what I say. You know, you've just confessed something to me that's very heavy for you. And you just said something like, I don't know how I can be a church member anymore. I know you won't respect me anymore. They do all these self Doubting things. And I say to them, but you need to know, I love you more now that you're honest with God before me than I did before. And I mean it. Friends, Scripture says we ought to confess our sins one to other. Scripture says that there is healing and freedom in that forgiveness. There's something amazing that happens when you stop letting that sin lord over you that is burdening you, but you release it and it doesn't have any authority over you anymore. And as believers in Jesus, when we can receive confession from others and affirm our love for them because Jesus died for them as He died for us, it's a powerful thing. Would that we would be a church that so knows each other, not just on Sunday, but day in, day out, week in, week out, that we can live lives of intimacy with one another, where there's no secrets, where there's freedom to confess, affirmation, accountability not to keep sinning, but love to embrace and grow more like Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, this is challenging to consider these things. 
Yeah, we know you're God and you made everything. And that Jesus died for us. And the Bible is our authority. And you give us pastors to guide us. And you even give us one another to confront sin and seek to redeem us and comfort and courage and love us. God, may we not just hear this message today and say, oh, well. But may we, by your Holy Spirit, remember what you've taught us today. So that next time in our personal lives or in our church life, we have a situation that comes up that challenges us to be worldly. That we will remember what it's like to be godly. And to be the church you've called us to be based on your word. So, Father, we pray that if there's a soul here today that needs to ask Christ to be their Savior and Lord, they would do that. And they'd share that revelation with us. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here today that needs to unite with this church family, that they would do that and we can celebrate with them. Whatever it is, God, would we obey and would you bring glory We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.